welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is, and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible, and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at the O.J. Simpson case. Arenthal James Simpson was born in July 1947. When he was in high school, he played football as a tackle, then became a fullback. In college, he achieved a scholastic record that allowed him to play at the University of South Carolina. There, he set records for yards gained by rushing. He was named an All-American in 1967, played in two Rose Bowl games, and won the Heisman Trophy for the best collegiate player of the season in 1968. He was the number one pick for the American Football League, or AFL. He was drafted into the Buffalo Bills in 1969. In 1970, the AFL and the National Football League, or NFL, merged. The Buffalo Bills were part of the conference of the NFL when Simpson set a single season record for yards against rushing in 1973. After five years, Simpson had sustained injuries to his knees and was transferred to the San Francisco 49ers. He retired after the 1979 season. After retiring, Simpson became a film and television actor He also became a sports commentator. His nickname was Juice, possibly because of the energetic runs he'd pulled off during his career, and maybe because of his first initials. It seemed like he was living the best life he could. On June 12th, 1994, his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman, were stabbed to death outside her home in Los Angeles. It happened around 10pm, and the events are still disputed. What we do know is that just after midnight, Nicole's Akita attracted the attention of the neighbourhood with its howling. It was found with blood on its stomach and legs, and the bodies were found shortly afterwards. OJ had flown to Chicago earlier in the day, on a plane that left at 11.45. He had taken a limo to get to the airport. The limo driver had called at 10.25 to report that nobody had answered the door and reported that he had seen a man he assumed to be OJ entering the house at 10.56. The police called OJ while he was at the O'Hare Plaza Hotel. He was planning to attend a Hertz rental car convention. When they informed him that Nicole was dead, he didn't ask any questions. Later, he said that he had smashed a glass in grief, cutting his hand. OJ got on the next flight to LA. He arrived home at noon to be put in the middle of a police investigation. The front gate of his house was adorned with police tape and bloodstains on the driveway were marked as evidence. OJ was questioned for about half an hour that day. 
He was asked about the deep cut on his hand and he said that he didn't know where he had gotten it. Later in the interview, he said that he had cut his hand when he got into his car the previous night and it was aggravated when he broke the glass after being told that Nicole was dead. The police interview wasn't conducted very well. They didn't ask follow-up questions, even though they'd been set up for them. They also didn't talk about entire areas of the investigation that could have given them a lot of answers. Saying that he believed that if he couldn't have Nicole, nobody could. They also laid out the facts that supposedly proved that OJ did it. The defence gave their opening statements the next day, but gave a confused timeline of events for the day of the murder and gave the suggestion that OJ was crippled by arthritis and couldn't possibly be the murderer. The trial lasted for 99 days and involved 72 witnesses. Some of the witnesses suggested that OJ had a motivation for killing Nicole. Other witnesses suggested that they believed that he had committed the murder. Those who suggested that OJ had a motive was made up of friends of Nicole, friends of OJ and a 911 dispatcher. All of them had reports of OJ's history of domestic abuse. Denise Brown, Nicole's sister, said that she had seen OJ on the day of the murder at her daughter's dance recital. She recalled seeing him looking like a madman. She also told of a time that OJ grabbed Nicole's vagina and talked about how it belonged to him. Finally, she told of how OJ had once picked Nicole up and thrown her against a wall. One of OJ's friends testified that he had heard OJ saying that he had dreams of killing Nicole. The 911 dispatcher only took the stand so that the prosecution could play a phone call from Nicole that described an ongoing assault by OJ. The next set of witnesses involved the limo driver, a man named Kato Kalin, and police officers. The intention was to set up a timeline of events for the day. The limo driver testified that he had been at OJ's house at 10.25 to pick him up for his flight to Chicago. He said that he'd rang the doorbell repeatedly, but got no answer. He told about how around 11, a shadowy figure walked up the driveway and entered the house. A few minutes after that, OJ left the house, saying he'd overslept. OJ entered the limo with a black bag. He told the driver not to touch it. This bag was never seen again. It's believed that he threw it away at Los Angeles airport. The next witness was Kato Kalin. He testified that he and OJ had returned from a McDonald's run around 9.36, but couldn't account for his whereabouts. He said that he'd heard bumps on the wall around 11pm, which was around the same time that the limo driver saw the figure enter the house. The prosecution produced phone records of OJ's car's internal phone. The records show that he had used it to phone his girlfriend, Paula Barbieri, at 10.03. The defence never tried to explain how this could happen when OJ said that he was out in the back garden practising his golf swing. Eventually, the prosecution pulled up the evidence from the initial investigation. There was blood evidence, hair, fibres, 
and a footprint analysis from both the crime scene and OJ's home. One of the blood samples could only be linked to one out of 170 million sources and OJ fit into the profile. Another sample came from a pair of OJ's socks that they had found in his bedroom. The sample to match that blood was even less likely, but the prosecution testified that Nicole could be the only person in the world whose blood matched. The defence cross-examination of that evidence had little choice but to try and convince the jury that the evidence had either been planted or contaminated. The prosecution called an LAPD police officer, Mark Furman, to the stand. He had found a bloody glove outside Kato Kalin's room. This witness ended up helping the defence's theory that the police were corrupt. The prosecutor, Marcia Clark, treated Furman like he was the best person in the world. When the defence cross-examined, they asked if he had ever used the end slur in the last 10 years and he said that he hadn't. The next prosecutor trick was to produce the bloody gloves that had been found. They were confident that the gloves belonged to OJ and told him to put them on. In full view of the jury, OJ attempted to put the gloves on. The gloves didn't fit. Although it was possible that the blood had caused the gloves to shrink, the prosecution had shot itself in the foot. It's the part of the trial where, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit comes from. The judge, jury, lawyers, defendant and media took a trip to the crime scene. This was to provide the jury with a better understanding of the case and the locations involved within it. When they then visited OJ's house, the defence team used it as a chance to give OJ's life a positive spin taking down photos and replacing them with others. A Bible was even placed on an end table and in the end, their changes worked. On July 10th, 1995, OJ's daughter, Arnell, took the stand as the first of the defense's witnesses. OJ's mother, Eunice, would also take the stand. The defense's plan was working. And by the time that Eunice left the stand, it seemed like the jury was more empathetic towards OJ. They also called OJ's doctor to the stand, who said that OJ was suffering from arthritis and other health conditions. However, the prosecution stopped that narrative by producing evidence that OJ was running demanding exercises in a video taken shortly before the murder. Remember Mark Furman, the police officer, the one who said that he hadn't used the end slur. Well, it turned out that he had, and it was on tape. It turned out that he had been hired by a screenwriter to help with the script. Laura Hart McKinney, the screenwriter, had taped the interviews with Furman. The defense wanted her to take the stand, but the prosecution argued that it was irrelevant to the case. The judge allowed the evidence which opened the door for the defence's theory that Furman had taken a glove from the crime scene, put it in Nicole's blood, and then planted it in OJ's house. A forensic expert named Henry Lee 
managed to provide some justification for the defence's theories about the prosecution's evidence. Lee performed blood splatter demonstrations, suggested that a shoe print evidence had suggested more than one attacker, and outright said that the DNA analysis had something wrong with it. After Lee's testimony, the closing arguments came. The trial had broken records set by the Charles Manson case as the longest trial in Californian history. The jury had been attending this case for almost a year and were showing signs of their exhaustion. Judge Ito was also under attack for allowing the case to continue for as long as it had and also for being unable to keep the lawyers under control. The prosecution's closing statement involved doing damage control, mostly in the case of the Furman situation. Marcia Clark denounced Furman as a racist, the worst kind of cop, and someone we didn't need on this planet. It was a complete departure from her treatment of him earlier in the case. However, she said that his behaviour wasn't indicative of a frame-up. The statement relied on the amount of evidence they had produced, saying that it had been like a puzzle that revealed OJ's face. The defence came under fire for their statement, playing the race card and comparing the prosecution to Hitler. The jury only deliberated for three hours. The case had produced 150 witnesses over 133 days and had cost $15 million to try. At 10 a.m. on October 3rd, 1995, it was announced that the jury had found O.J. Simpson not guilty of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. The defense team celebrated and Ronald's sister and mother cried out. O.J. announced that he would spend the rest of his life trying to find the perpetrator of the murders but ended up in a civil trial soon afterwards. This one lasted three months and produced a different result. This time, after 17 hours of deliberation, the jury stated that OJ had wrongfully caused the deaths of Nicole and Ronald. He was ordered to pay compensatory damages of $8.5 million and punitive damages of $25 million. OJ moved to Florida in 2000. In 2006, OJ wrote the book, If I Did It. The publishers stated that they took it as a confession based on a part of the book that said that OJ had been in an argument with Ronald and Nicole that ended badly, but OJ wouldn't say what happened. In the account of the murder, there was a second person there, a friend of OJ's called Charlie. The book was recalled but ended up being retitled, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. The case has been looked at multiple times over the years, but the verdict is still a little unclear. The original jury found him innocent, and the second jury proclaimed that he did it. The evidence definitely proves there was a murder, but doesn't particularly add up to OJ definitely doing it. The book, however, goes against everything else. This is a difficult one, and so far, I've not given a definite answer to any of these mysteries. I'm not about to start now.
As always, this isn't an open and shut mystery. There are several theories of who did this and why. I promise no answers, and I don't know what I think about this personally, so I'm just going to give you the information. Realistically, this whole mystery splits into two camps. Either it was OJ, or it wasn't. The first theory today is that drug dealers were involved in the murders. It was argued that Nicole had owed a drug dealer money, and rumours had gone around that she was the victim of addiction. The theory actually goes that they were looking for Nicole's friend, Faye Resnick, and Nicole was caught in the crossfire. Faye Resnick has denied the drugs rumours, even writing a book about it, but it doesn't seem enough to convince them. The next theory is that OJ's son might actually be the culprit. Jason Simpson was a child from a previous marriage, and private detective Bill Deer believed that Jason was obsessed with Nicole and had killed her in a jealous rage after she had missed a dinner that he had planned. In Bill Deer's version, OJ was only involved in the cleanup. Deer was so sure of this theory that he talked about it on a BBC documentary and also published a book. Some people buy into this theory, but others believe it's so circumstantial and that it neglects OJ's blood was potentially found at the scene. Joining the theory that Jason did it... <clears throat> no. Joining the theory that Jason did it with the possibility that OJ did it, some people believe that they were both involved. The theory was discussed in episodes 7 and 8 of the Real Crime podcast and included allegations that Jason had previously threatened girlfriends and managers with a knife. The fact that Nicole and Ronald were stabbed to death makes this more suspicious. This addition to the theory does explain how OJ's blood would possibly be at the crime scene though. Some have pointed out that it might be difficult to kill two people with a knife as just one person, so two people would make more sense. It's possible that it was caused by chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, which is a degenerative disease caused by repeated blows to the head. CTE causes atrophy and a decrease in brain weight, among other symptoms. It's been linked to erratic behaviour, poor judgement and other personality distorting behaviours. It could explain why he believed he was innocent, because he may not have remembered doing anything. However, CTE can't be diagnosed perimortem. It needs an autopsy to diagnose it. So we're not going to know if this is the case until OJ passes away. One of the wilder theories is that someone hired a killer to commit the murders. Clay Rogers, the brother of serial killer Glenn Rogers, the cross-country killer or the Casanova killer, believes that that's the case. Glenn was apprehended in 1995 and sentenced to death. Whilst on death row, Clay says that Glenn confessed to the murders. The theory suggests that it was actually OJ who hired Glenn, but it was only supposed to be a robbery. Whatever happened next is a mystery, but Nicole and Ronald were murdered during that time.
If OJ hired him, then how was OJ's blood potentially at the scene? It wouldn't make sense for OJ to implicate himself like that. If this is true, it would have had to have been somebody else. Someone who had the intent of implicating OJ. There's also the fact that Glenn Rogers claimed to kill more than 70 people before recanting all of them. So his confessions aren't exactly trustworthy. In a book called Blood Oath, a conspiracy theory is outlined that an Aryan cult of white supremacists were trying to start a race war. To do that, they killed Nicole and framed OJ. Unfortunately for Ronald, his presence with Nicole caused his death too. This was apparently to expose the flaws in the US justice system. This has a few people convinced, but the reason doesn't really make much sense. Why would white supremacists want to expose the flaws in a system using the people they hate? It's a very confusing theory. OJ himself suggested a second attacker in his book. I named him Charlie earlier, but it's believed that it may have been Al Cowlings, a former teammate of OJ's. The reason people point to him is because it was Cowling's car that OJ was driving in the police chase. The only other person mentioned in relation to an accomplice is Jason Simpson, which I've already covered. The final theory today comes straight from the trial. One of OJ's lawyers, F. Lee Bailey, told the court how OJ was innocent. Not only that, he said, but the victims weren't even the intended targets. He believed it was drug dealers, but that the dealers believed Ronald and Nicole were totally different people. He said he had a witness that could back up the theory, but they never appeared in court. The explanation of that was because more witnesses would cause a mistrial. It's not all that convincing, since the trial racked up 150 witnesses anyway. Even after all of this, I still don't know how I feel about this one. OJ hasn't stayed out of trouble and did end up in prison in Nevada, only to be released at the end of 2021. The only person who knows the truth is OJ, and I don't know if we're ever going to find out. The story from this episode came from the Britannica article on OJ Simpson and a famous trials article called The Trial of Orenthal James Simpson, an account. Theories from this episode came from a Ranker article called Eight Theories About the OJ Simpson Case That Still Have People Asking Questions. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, Links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of a £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree. And as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree, but it doesn't open up a new email, so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events, and anything else you want me to read out. Or, 
If you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. The next Creature feature will be out on Saturday and next week's episode comes out on June 22nd. So hold on until then. Thank you.